All right. So, um, Pastor Joe is going to be with us for the next two weekends, and so I decided I will start Colossians in October. So, in case you're wondering why I'm not doing Colossians again, um, this week I was reflecting on, since Pastor Joe is at least going to talk about attachment love next week, and he's going to kind of walk us through some different things about attachment love, I thought it would be really good to kind of talk about love from a particular perspective, which is why I did uh, the, the word weary. Um, because I, uh, one of the images as I was preparing this week that I've been kind of wrestling through a little bit in my own personal life is um, if you picture two oxen plowing in a field, right? And there's this, this image that Jesus gives us where he says that, um, take my yoke. You don't have to use your own yoke. Take my yoke and journey with me. Um, but I was still thinking as I was trying to live my week out of his rhythms of work and rest rather than my own, that it's still a lot of hard work, isn't it? Like, for an oxen to be plowing a field, even if he's shoulder to shoulder to Jesus, they're still putting in a ridiculous amount of work. And it's usually on a sunny day, maybe sometimes in the rain, but it's not this easy kind of like way of lifestyle where we're at the beach hanging out with Jesus with a beer in our hand kind of thing. Jesus drank wine, so that's the 21st century version of that. Um, but that's not the imagery that he's conjuring up for us. Is he's conjuring up this imagery of side by side, the work that we're going to do is together, but there will be labor, there will be toil, there will be sweat on our brow. And so I was thinking about, even if we're shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, that love can still make us weary. So I had a question for you, and this is not one that, the first part of the question is not, I don't want you to name the person and keep it in your head. But then there's a second part. So the question that I have for you, as you consider attachment love and loving people and receiving love, who is someone in your life that is difficult for you to love? <laughs> I originally put someone slash group of people. Who is someone spouses shouldn't be looking at each other right now, giving it away? Who is someone in your life that is difficult for you to love? It sounds like you already have that person in your head. Um, and then think about why. I don't want you to share the, the name of the person or the group of people, but I would love for you to talk amongst yourselves about why is it difficult uh, for you to love that person. So go ahead and, and do that. Okay, now that you're done complaining to one another about these people that are difficult to love in your life, as best as you can, um, and look, this is, again, this is a space that, um, that we're meant to talk about these things and meant to wrestle through these things. Um, this isn't a space to gossip, it's not a space to per se complain, but it's to come face to face with reality, the reality that we face every day, and to figure out what Christ says in the midst of that. So I want to I wanna do this as best as way possible. Before I ask you why and we share that, I just want to say that um, 
I want to be very clear that there's a difference between difficult people and abusive people. There's a difference between uh, difficult people and manipulative people. And when we're talking about this today, I want to be very, very, very clear. What we're wrestling through about what it means to love people when we're weary does not mean the people that are abusive to us. It doesn't mean the people that are, are manipulative and hurtful. So let's be very clear about that. Uh, I'm not making an excuse to chase after those people. I literally wrote in my notes, don't walk, run away from those people, okay? Um, so we're, we're not talking about that context. What we are talking about are these people that are in our lives that maybe they just have different personalities, maybe they have, you know, we're gonna say why, but they're just a little bit more difficult to love than other people in our lives. But we know that they're in our lives to be loved and to receive their love. But it's that constant clashing, right? And it's kind of like that picture of oxen instead of shoulder to shoulder, it's kind of like we do this and then we do that. And then we like butt each other a little bit or kick each other, um, that kind of thing. So as you consider someone that's uh, difficult for you to love in your life, why is that? What are some of the things that you're struggling through to love as far as loving? Yeah, go ahead. Say it again. Different values, okay. Yeah. Different values, that's a really good one. Anybody else? Troublemakers. Why'd you look at me? <laughs> Troublemakers. Unhealthy relationships. Crisis oriented. Okay. Man, these are really good. Crisis oriented. Yeah. Different realities. Okay. Self centered. Okay. Say it again. Priorities. Different priorities. Okay. All about them. All about them. Everybody else in their Okay. So very consuming, narcissistic. Okay. Anybody else? Way to showing your love that are hard to see. Okay. Hard to see. Way to showing that are hard to see. So like yeah, I, I appreciate that, too. Like, different love languages. So it's like, I know you're trying to love me, but that's not how I receive love. Okay, Tom. Uh, different, different way of communicating. Different way of communicating. Okay. Notice how these are all really good examples of interpersonal relationships that are, that are supposed to happen, but they're just not going smoothly. Self-centered and narcissism is a little bit different. Like, we can, we can get to the level of abusive in that really quickly. Um, so we need to be careful about that one. I'll just say that out loud. Um, but let's go from the context again that these are people that are in our lives that are meant to be loved. We're supposed to love them, and we're also supposed to receive love from them. Okay? So that's kind of the foundation that we're operating from. So I wanted to kind of, I know that uh, Gary did a great job of reading for us. I know it's jumping around, but it was just three particular passages that stuck out to me. Um, we're actually going to work from the top to the bottom. It's actually reverse, and it'll make sense what I'm saying, because I know that didn't make sense, even in my head. But we'll start with Revelation and then uh, start again with 2 Thessalonians. Okay, so let me give you some context from this, to this letter, to John, uh, John is writing, giving you some context to who he's writing it to. There's several different churches that are receiving this letter, okay? Um, the particular one that I focused on was a letter to Ephesus, okay? 
So to give you some context about what the type of people that he's writing to, by all means, read Ephesians. Read Acts, because there you will see the character of the people as they're receiving the gospel, and then also the gospel is being spread, some of the things that they had to deal with. Uh, more specifically, in Ephesus is one of the centers of em uh, emperor worship. So if you remember when I talked about how Rome, one of the things that they did was worship their emperors, right? So specifically in, in Ephesus, that was like the epicenter of Roman worship. So as they looked to whoever the emperor was at the time, that's who they worshiped. And then on top of that, they had another, I forgot the, the name, um, Artemis was the other, the temple, it was a huge temple for Artemis. So you have two different contrasting sort of uh, centers of worship, and right in the midst of that, you have Christians that are starting, really uh, many of them are Gentiles, there are some Jews, that are starting to step into their faith, they've been living it out. So John is actually following a pattern, which is first he's encouraging them, and then he's challenging them. And then he follows it up with some more encouragement. But he's recognizing uh, that they're doing some things well, and then they've done something that isn't so good. So I'll read it to you. This is uh, to Ephesus from John, and this is in chapter 2, verse 2. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let me unpack this a little bit. So what we can see from the Ephesians is that in terms of belief, they're right up there. They know all the things to believe. They're even rejecting the false things. So that's where it says um, that the testing of the apostles is that as we know that there's apostles like John, there's apostles like Paul that are going out and they're sharing the healthy, true gospel. There's other people that are coming in and they're kind of circumventing them. They're taking bits and pieces of the message and then twisting it a little bit. And they're able to test that. They know the good news well enough to discern this is actually good news and this isn't good news. They can test it against the empire. They can test it against uh, the worship in the temple of Artemis. They can look around them and say, this is true and this isn't true. This is like Jesus. This isn't like Jesus. However, if you look at verse 4, it says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, on the surface... We could interpret that as they abandoned Christ, which is their first love. Um, and, and there's some sense to that. But really what John is pointing out to them, we find in verse 5. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent, and then it says, and do the works you did at first. So one of the issues that the Ephesians had as they were living out their faith is that because they were constantly testing right and wrong belief, constantly testing good news and bad news, is that they became suspicious, suspicious of one another. So um, you would hear this a, a lot of times uh, in war-torn countries, constantly. Um, somebody that's affiliated with the empire or the king or whoever is in rule, and then someone that isn't. 
And so they're constantly looking at their neighbors. Do you believe the right thing? Are you doing the right thing? Are you following the right way? Are you following this apostle over here? Are you going to the temple of Artemis? I thought I saw that eagle. Is that, are you worshiping the emperor? So they were so focused on right belief that they had lost the most important thing, which was love. Now, I know that um, when we talk about our context as Lutheran, I mean, we have some pretty rich belief, don't we? I mean, over 500 years. And then we can trace it back even further. But 500 years that we can look at and say through the work of Martin Luther, right, that we can look to our faith and say, man, we have some pretty robust belief. Sadly, (laughs) are we known for our love? I mean, actually, if you look at even the origins of the Reformation, it was very much shoulder to shoulder with people. Are you believing the right thing? Are you doing the right thing? Are you believing the right thing? And there were wars that were fought over right belief and right action. But what we see here with the Ephesians is John isn't necessarily, he's actually commending them for their belief. He's saying, great job, excellent job, that you believe all the right things. However, however, where is your love? Where is your love for the the narcissist in your midst? Where is your love for the self-centered person in your midst? Where is the person that has different values than you? Maybe not even different beliefs, but different values in the way that they express those same things that they believe. I mean, for example, how many denominations have you heard? We all believe in Jesus, right? But it's the expression of that love that looks different. Some of the values, I mean, we're talking there's some denominations that split over nuances, just tiny, tiny nuances, not even the big stuff. And so what we find here is that John is saying, you know, pump the brakes for a second. Yes, right belief is essential, and I commend you for that, but where is your love? And he writes it in a context of people that are meant to be loved. Because if you think about it, if there's empire worship and there's worship of Artemis, do you think that they're like some megachurch? In, uh, in Ephesus? No, it's the opposite. They're tiny little pockets of believers. And the, what binds them together isn't just right belief, it's intentional love. And so it's, it, it, the, the lack of love is so threatening to the, to the Christians in Ephesus that John actually says to them, I will come to you and remove this light because you don't have love. In other words, it's to say like the people here at House of God or if you look at your homes as, or in your workplaces, the opportunities to put a lampstand, to put a light and to say, this is what I stand for. He says, if you're not with love, I will come and I will remove it because whatever light you're shining isn't the light of the good news. That makes sense? So it's a, it's, it's a loving challenge. It's an absolutely loving challenge. He's saying great stuff. This is where you can grow, and then he follows it up with some other great stuff that they're doing. Now, if we then go towards the, the next part, I still I want this question to be front and center as you consider the people that you love. They may have right belief. They may be, they may be with the title of brother or sister or husband or wife or coworker. these people that are in your life intricately, side by side, journeying with you. Now, 
we'll go to 1 Corinthians. So um, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, this is a passage that is just, I don't want to say beat to death, but that's the only thing that's coming to mind. But I mean, we hear it at weddings. We hear it all the time. Love, 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 love. And I'm frankly speaking, I don't know that I can add much to it in terms of potentially what you've heard from pastors or commentaries or weddings. I mean, we have heard this passage over and over and over again. But there's something to it that I want for us to consider. It's really difficult to love someone. We become weary if we're not also receiving love. And one of the things that I noticed as I was listening to you, is that these people that are difficult to love, it's difficult for us to receive love from them. Why? For various reasons. Different values, self-centered, all the things that you said, all the things that you listed. We feel like, and I'm going to put words in your mouth, but I'll speak for myself, I feel like oftentimes I'm giving and giving and giving and giving and giving and giving and giving, right? And then I get like a penny's worth back. And is that not exhausting? <laughs> yes. It is so exhausting. And what makes it so exhausting is because you look at that person and you know, this is the person that I'm supposed to love that way. And so it's like, will, will there ever be some like equality or, or even like, I'll take 30%. Just give me 30% of what I'm giving to you, right? And I find uh, there's some different personality tests that you can take, and my personality specifically is really oriented around loving people and, and, and unfortunately, not even being able to receive love back very easily. So, like, you can imagine in my mind, I'm constantly like, when are you going to love me back? But then I don't know how to receive it. So I'm, like, in this constant chasm of despair. Um, but I think one of the things that I've, as I've been looking inwardly at myself and how I give and receive love, one of the things that I've noticed is that the person that I can receive love from unequivocally is Jesus. And that's not because I'm a pastor. That's not because I necessarily call myself a Christian. I just look at the love of Jesus, and he's so consistent in the way he loves. He's the only one that if you look to how he's loved, you know, certainly he expects worship and stuff like that, but his starting place is, I'm just going to love you, whether or not it's reciprocated. If you look through the Gospels, that's what's the good news about it. That's what's gracious and merciful about it. He just looks to us in our brokenness, and he says, I love you. It's pretty amazing, right? We sang the song today, and we'll sing some songs later, to talk about his love towards the cross. One of the songs I've been listening to today is with one look, he changes everything. And if you've ever had that look from Jesus, you know it changes everything. Where he's just so gracious in the way that he deals with me. It's overwhelming. It's the opposite. Rather than me feeling like I need to take more, instead I'm like, I want to give you everything and I feel like it's not enough. Have you ever had that kind of love before? It's usually we get sucked dry and we become weary. And he's like, I love you so well, you'll never be able to give enough. You'll never be able to earn this kind of love. So that's the starting place that I want to start with because realistically, 
while 1 Corinthians is absolutely oriented around how we love other people, that's the context of the passage. The only way the Corinthians are going to understand how to love people that way is if they see Christ in the light of being, loving them in that way. So, for example, Jesus' love is patient. Jesus' love is kind. His love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. His love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but instead rejoices in the truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Uh, this is the way of belovedness. This is the way, like, just here. Beloved, right? I've said this and I will keep saying it. To be beloved means to receive, to be loved with an unending intentional love. And it's out of that. It's first done in us and then through us. It's first to be received. Man, your love is patient with me. Especially when we're doing some really boneheaded stuff, right? You are so patient with me. You are so kind. I, I, my pastor, he says to me, he always, it's so annoying that he does this too. I'll be talking, we're eating breakfast, and he's looking at me and he's like, well, there's a sweet kiss from God. And I'm like, man, would you stop with this sweet kiss from God stuff? <laughs> because I know it's true. But I, you know, like when I'm like, well, this was annoying and this, and he's like, but look what he did and his kindness towards me. Never once have I seen Jesus and his love towards me be envious or boastful. I don't see Jesus standing there like, look at what I did. Look at me, how great I am. I mean, if anything, he's the guy that's like, he's the wallflower. He died this horrific death the sacrifice of love. He was spit on. I mean, that's the opposite of boastful or arrogant. Now, the challenge thing is it does not insist on its own way. Have you ever noticed that when you're doing those boneheaded things that we won't talk about, that he doesn't stop you? He's not like, skirt, stop. Stop what you're doing. Don't be a dummy again. He lets you do it, and he'll let you keep doing it over and over and over again. Because inevitably, you're going to have a pile of trash compared to the perfect love of Jesus. And which one's going to stand out? The trash? The consequences for all the, the dumb decisions that we made? Or the perfect love of Jesus, who will walk through the trash pile with us and get dirty with us and say, I'm going to heal this. I'm going to take care of this. This pain and suffering that you're experiencing from your own decisions, I'm with you in it. Which one stands out? It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. So he's not cheerleading us in our ways. Instead, what he's doing is he's saying, I rejoice in the truth. And what I see is rejoice. Have you ever gone to a sporting event where people are cheering? Yes. yes. And why are they cheering? 
team's doing well, score, run, whatever the context of the sporting event. Have you ever been to a concert when the, when the person comes out that you're all there to see? What do people do? Yeah. Right? They rejoice. So what I hear is rather than him constantly, rather than love, because God is love, rather than God constantly saying, hey, Sean, stop. That's dumb. And here, instead what I hear is him rejoicing in truth. His truth drowns out my own stupidity. I know I'm being raw today, I guess, right? His truth, his love, he's so confident in his perfect love that that's what drowns out everything. He rejoices in truth. What is truth? That he is love. That he's perfect in the way he loves. That there's nothing that can, that can overcome that kind of love. And rather than point out all the ways that we misstep, he points out all the ways that he's good. Let's keep going. He has a love that bears all things, believes all things. Have you ever had somebody that just believes in you despite yourself? They look at you and they see things about you that you don't see in yourself. What does that feel like? It feels like you can conquer anything. Because there's something deep in you that when you look in the mirror, you're like, man, why do you love me like that? Right? Why do you? I see that with my kids all the time. They do something that they shouldn't be doing, and I'm just patient with them and calm, and I'm loving towards them, and I see in their eyes, why are you doing that, Daddy? Because I know they should be getting a timeout, or they should be losing the iPad, or whatever. But instead, I'm patient with them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a perfect father um, by no stretch of the imagination. But it's because when I look at them, I see the things that they can be, not the things that they are. And that's how our God in his perfect love towards us, he sees us in that way. He hopes all things and he endures all things. See, real love endures all things. So I say if we don't have this sort of perspective in the way that God relates to us, then most assuredly, yeah, we're going to constantly become weary because we're, we're conjuring up love. We're trying to build it in ourselves and saying, well, because Thomas is leading worship, I should love him because he may not play the guitar next week, right? Or I should love my spouse because that's what the Bible says and I took these vows. Or I should love my coworker because, you know, I got to. Whatever these sort of excuses that we make. But what Jesus is pointing out, what, what this letter is pointing out, that this love that conjures up isn't because we're supposed to. It's because it's one of the ways that we express what Christ is doing in us. For me to love somebody out of my belovedness is completely different than just loving for the sake of love. When I know that I'm a beloved son of God, that changes everything. But inevitably, um, we can become weary in our belovedness, just like I said, because we're going shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, and it's like some days it's just rough, and that's okay. And there are some people in our lives that are just way harder to love than other people, and that's okay. God's not saying that, well, that's not all right that you struggle with this person. For me, I see it as an opportunity 
to love, for love to become manifested. I can't tell you how many of my best friends that I didn't like the first time I met them, or the second time probably. But over time, as we were more, because what happens with somebody that, that maybe you don't like the first time, they kind of rub you the wrong way. You're more intentional about the way that you love them. You're more intentional about the way that you listen to them. You're, you're more willing to be hopeful and enduring. Now, some people, you're just like, nah, you don't need to be in my life. I'm not talking about those people, though. I, I, I can't tell you in these past eight months, if I didn't have some of those people that, that gave me a chance and I gave them a chance, I don't know where I would be. Because they teach me what this kind of love is. And the constant overtone is because they, they understand their belovedness. And they understand their belovedness in trials. And they understand their belovedness in sorrows. And they understand their belovedness in hurt. And they move from that. Christ in them and through them. So, uh, Second Thessalonians. It's uh, verse 5. Uh, it reads, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You know, when I read this, this little verse that's tucked away, I see a reset button. I see a reset button. I want you to consider that person that you're weary with and that is difficult for you to love. Or perhaps, perhaps, Maybe you're so weary in your relationship with God that oh, there's a beautiful hummingbird. I guess he came to hear it too. Um, maybe it's so, it's so difficult for you to receive this truth of your belovedness in God. Maybe you're weary. Maybe you've heard these First Corinthian passages. I don't know how many times you're like, but when, Sean? When, Lord? Maybe you're weary in your relationship with God, or maybe you're weary with this person. I see just this little tiny verse is such a beautiful reset button. I'll read it again. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Note that it says, may the Lord lead. And what does that mean? Submission. May the Lord lead. As you look to the relationship that you have with this person or the, to the relationship that you have with him, maybe it's just, I need to yield this. Like, I need to give this over. Maybe you need to do a physical act, which is like you need to put a name on a piece of paper and in your prayer life, give it to God as if you're putting it in his hand and saying, I yield this relationship to you. Perhaps it's your own name on that piece of paper in prayer, and you're saying, I yield my life to you again. Because for whatever reason, this belovedness thing, this love that you talked about in 1 Corinthians, I don't feel that way. I don't think you feel that way about me, and I don't feel that way about you. And maybe it's just that activity, that constant intentional decision to say, here you go. I'm yielding it. I give it to you. That's all I can do here. He says, may the Lord direct what? Your hearts, that inner life, that inner work. So now it's not Sean's responsibility or fill in the blank with your name, your responsibility. It's Christ in you directing your heart. Have you ever be, like wondered how you should love somebody? 
like you're weary with them, so you're like, okay, well, if I do this, then they're going to take advantage of that. And if I do this, then they're going to do that, right? All these head games. But when you have Christ directing your heart, do you think that you're going to have as many head games? Probably not. You may say, oh, because, this is generally what happens. Because it's so radical, oftentimes you're going to be like, uh-huh, are you sure, Jesus? Do you really want me to do that? But it's not, should I do this or should I do that? It, it's like challenged by the directness of his love in your heart to them. May the Lord direct your hearts to what? Self-love? Thomas love? No, to the love of God. Again, what's the source? What's the foundation? What's the living water? It's God's love in us. It's his perfect love, his enduring love, his unending hopeful love, constant and consistent. And then it says, and to the steadfastness, steadfastness of Christ, do you think Jesus was steadfast on the cross? Let me give you a, a definition of steadfastness. Go ahead, Tom, put one up there. This is what it means in the Greek. It means steadfastness is the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. When you look to the life of Christ, and more specifically, if you look to the love of Christ at the cross, do you see that? His love was so enduring and steadfast that in utter difficulty and defeat, he was there. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, that sacrificial good news, and to the steadfastness of Christ. See, when we understand the work that he did on the cross, not just the ransom, but the victory of the work on the cross, it's from that that we draw the capacity to hold out or bear up. Because at the end of the day, these people are difficult for us to love for all the reasons that we've listed and some of the ones that are in the back of your head, but like they hurt me or they did that or they did this. Yes, those things are true. But that's why we look to God's love first because he begins to heal those places in our heart so that through that, we can be steadfast in our love because it's not even our love. We're just pointing people. It's just a mirror and a reflection of God's love to us. I mean, that's what... That's what he's saying here. May the Lord direct your hearts to what? The love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Does it say anything about your love and how you're going to do it? Nope. This is just a mere passage. Mirror what's going on in your heart to the people around you. So he would say in the context of Revelation, hey, Ephesians, stop being so suspicious just love one another and you'll get to know each other. He's saying to you, to the narcissist that you're dealing with, or the self-centered person, or the, way, the person that has different values, if you love them, you will be so caught up in that love, it will be hard to see all of these things that rub you like sandpaper. And when they keep consuming and consuming from you, then you'll be able to discern, this isn't a person that I need in my life, and they don't need me in their life. You see how that works? Christ drives it, and he does it in us. So uh, consider for a moment as we look towards the table this morning, do you need a reset button? And if so, 
consider this an action of faith to say, God, do this work in me. I look at your sacrificial love and I see that 1 Corinthians 13 passage. What a perfect love it is. And I accept that. I receive that, that message that I am your beloved. Thank you. And then from that, you know, I, I love that today we have our potluck dinner. This is an opportunity. Maybe there isn't anybody in here that annoys you, right? But when you're in good friendship and good fellowship and good love, what does that do? Is it builds the work that Christ is already doing in you. That's what the church does. And then you take that to the person that's driving shoulder to shoulder with you that cut you off or to the person at the grocery store that cut you off or the person that flicked you off. And I've got a lot of off things right here. The people that are causing offenses, maybe even in your own home, right? This is the reset and the reorientation. We reorient ourselves around the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, his broken body and his shed blood. So let me pray to prepare our hearts. Thank you for being so vulnerable and honest. I could see it on your faces, those slight ticks where you're like, oh, you're getting too close, Sean. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, we thank you for your perfect love. We thank you for your steadfastness, your intentionality, this death that you died on the cross for us. You knew every single way that we would run from you, that we would hide from you, that we would reject you, that we would spit on you, that we would scream at you, that we would scoff at you. And you said to each one of us, you are so worth it. And God, I pray that that would sink into our hearts and to our minds, that we are so worth it to you. That we're so worth that kind of love. God, reorient us around this truth of your sacrifice, that it is good news. And because of this reorienting good news love, that we can go into this world and love people through you, that we get to be a mirror to point people to you, Jesus, to your death and sacrifice, to that proclamation, that rejoicing that says, you are so worth it. I love you so much. God, I pray for each heart in this room and each mind that has been hurt by these people that are difficult to love, that have offended us, that have taken from us, that have stripped us of things. Lord, I pray for your healing this morning for all of us. I pray that there would be a reset button. I pray for those that have hurt us too much that we can't reach out to them, but Lord, I pray that you would bring people into their lives that can. And for those that we work with or our family members or friends, I pray for that healing that only you can bring. Because you said on the cross that you healed sickness. And broken relationships is a form of sickness. It's a heart condition in us, and it's a mind condition in us. And you say that you will renew our hearts and our minds. So I pray for that this morning. Pray that you would break down walls, and you would bring new freedom. And that we would even see it, whether it be today or this week, um, and that as we're weary, that you would give us the steadfastness and this endurance from you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.